We'll have some table discussion. So you should have, a, have this sheet of paper that was just handed out at your table. And then we'll have a time of Q&A uh, for whatever is necessary with what was just discussed and just to share what our table discussed. And that'll be the format both for tonight and tomorrow morning. Okay, so 20 minutes of, of content, 20 minutes of table discussion, 20 minutes of, um, of Q&A. And our goal is not just to learn from Jeff, but to learn from each other. And then, you know, so if you have this question, chances are other people have this question. And we have microphones that we can uh, move around on either side of the room to ask questions. You can also write questions. I think there are pieces of paper on your table with pens that we'll be handing out at some point that you can write questions. Or um, if you want to text in a question and you're just like, I don't want anybody to know who I am, um, I'm going to give you a phone number right now. Um, it's 423-667-3044. 423-667-3044. That's my uncle in Tennessee. He doesn't know who you are, and he's going to just <laughs> forward that to me. Um, I'll say it one more time, though. 423-667-3044. And if you would just rather text in a question, we won't... It doesn't matter who it's from. Um, I'll get those to Jeff, and we'll present that to him and present that to our, the room. So you, a lot of ways to ask questions. And um, so one of the things, and, and the cards that are there at the table, yes, as well. So, um, so we'll just fill that out however that goes, and maybe there's more questions in the morning than there's in the evening as we just sort of get comfortable. But um, that's one of the things that we want to see happen. A few other announcements. If you're um, new to Wallace... You have restrooms on this side. So if you go through that doorway there, there's a male and female restroom there. And then over here, um, there's uh, just one bathroom for anybody who gets there first, essentially. So uh, you got one here, you got two there. If, it's, if, if you're just in a, if they're both occupied, I'll just put it that way, upstairs, there's one upstairs as well. Um, but hopefully we won't be in that situation. But if you need it, there it is. Um, I've mentioned desserts, feel free to grab that. Oh, we have a book table out back, and all the books are $10, and I know Jeff will be referencing several. I'm gonna try to highlight a few. Um, the first one I'm gonna highlight is just my favorite. It's called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller, and um, if you have never read it or if you're looking for a resource now on marriage, let me highlight this and go home with it. Um, I would recommend any of the books on that table that we have out there for sale. Um, I know on the left side are the books that we have for sale, and the right side are books of our own library. So definitely recognize the difference. But um, this is just fantastic for uh, multiple reasons, whether you're thinking about marriage especially, um, if you've been married or you just got married. Um, this is one of these books that I like to reread every three to five years, or actually have A to read, reread every three to five years. It works really well. So... And you can listen to it, yes, yes. So um, that's our book for tonight. I'll highlight that one for you. Um, I've been asked as well if, um, if there are folks here who, would, who are going to be with us tomorrow morning, if you are able to help us put the room back together for Sunday morning, we can always use a few more hands as we will be taking all the chairs that are um, on the sidelines here, the ambulatory, I think that's what it's called. We'll be bringing those in for the sanctuary to, to the sanctuary space for Sunday morning. So think about that. If you're available tomorrow morning, 
to help us do that, um, more hands make work light. Uh, I think somebody said that one time. Okay, well, having said that, Jeff, we are so glad you're here, and I'm going to hand this over to you and let you come up and uh, be with us. So thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, it is a joy to, to be with you and to, uh, to spend some time together thinking about our marriages or potential marriages, uh, what it means to become ultimately the kind of people God wants us to be. Uh, much of that happens through marriage and certainly always through relationships that we become the people who God wants us to be. Let me tell you just a little bit about myself. I'm a, uh, a mid-Atlantic kid. I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, so not too far away from here. Um, and uh, I was initially a physical therapist, but uh, came to faith in Christ during my college years. Uh, met my wife now of 37 years when we were freshmen. Uh, we had a notoriously on and off again relationship during our college years, which I say has now been notoriously on again for a long time. Um, and we're grateful for that. Um, I have uh, three children uh, adopted, uh, transracial or cross-racial lines. They are um, they're biracial. Each of them had a black parent and a white parent. And uh, and I I live currently in New York City, where I've been for 32 years. Um, I live in the Harlem community. Um, I uh, initially was ordained a minister at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Uh, under James Montgomery Boyce, and there I did college ministry. But when Redeemer Presbyterian Church started in New York City, I had been Tim's student during seminary. And uh, when he moved up to New York, and it really grew well beyond he, what he ever expected it to grow and was beyond his ability to handle just by himself, he got through his A-list of people who he wanted to join him. And uh, no one said yes, and so I fancy myself, I don't know that this is true, but I fancy myself that I was at the top of the B list. Um, for all I know, I was at the bottom of the C list, but that's just a lie I tell myself. Um, in any event, uh, I have been doing marriage counseling, both for uh, in sort of premarital counseling, but crisis marriage counseling, and then marriage enrichment stuff for all, pretty much all 32 years that I've been in New York City. I am a relationship article junkie. Um, if it's out there and uh, it's in a newspaper, I read it, even if it's insane, and a lot of them are. Um, you know, you'll read it and you say, I don't agree with anything that that person says. Um, we do have pretty different value systems about how our relationships work, what causes them to thrive, um, what it takes to make them thrive. And so that's what we want to explore um, together. This evening is a bit of a modified version of what we started about five or six years ago at Redeemer, we just recognized that uh, uh, Redeemer essentially for years didn't have a singles ministry, it was a singles ministry. Uh, during the early years of Redeemer, we were easily 80% single. The church I pastor at now is certainly 50% single at least. And so uh, lots of single folks, but increasingly a number of married people at Redeemer. And we thought, we're not doing anything to really help enrich our marriages um, at Redeemer. And so we started this program called Marriage Works, and it's going to run roughly along uh, the sort of the format that we have. I would get up, I'd, we'd, we'd have a really nice dinner. We wanted it to be kind of a date night kind of thing for couples. We thought that was important, not just another sort of teaching church thing going on, but where we'd serve beer and wine. And so I'm glad we had our wine steward here this evening, just to actually make it a kind of environment that felt like, hey, this is warm, this is good to 
be at, where with other people, we're enjoying each other. So I hope if nothing else happens uh, during this evening and tomorrow, that you really enjoy your time around the tables with each other. You enjoy your time with your spouse um, and just having a little bit of concentrated time together. So that is, I just want to be a help <laughs> in the midst of that. Um, and so that is, my wife and I have been praying for this time for you all. Um, and so, yeah, I hope this is a, a, is a rich time together as we reflect on our marriages. A few things to think about marriages, you know, uh, the statistics nowadays is that the divorce rate has actually gone down relatively considerably. Um, people don't always know that. They quote 50%. It's actually not that high. Um, it's lower than that now. Maybe once upon a time it was that high. Another thing we know about marriages nowadays is that good marriages are actually better than they've ever been. Um, there, there's a whole world of research on marriage that didn't exist uh, quite a significant amount of time ago, but there are a lot of people doing research on marriage and what causes, uh, what allows for a marriage to thrive and to be truly life-giving, give life to us, joy to us, and perhaps also, when they're done well, life to the people around us as well. I certainly believe that's what marriage is designed to do. But So marriages, fewer divorces, but a lower marriage rate more marriages than ever in the United States, but there's more people. The marriage rate is lower. But here's um, uh, something that also is interesting. The divorce rate among 60 and 70-year-olds is higher than ever. And it um, doesn't actually take too much uh, brain power to figure out why that would be. Uh, the reason is simply this. People are living longer. And uh, once you've been with a person for 30 years and you think you might have 20 more with them, you say, mm, I'm not sure I want to do that with this person. If I only had five more years, I could gut it out. Which is to simply say, uh, marriages have always needed two things, both maintenance and repair, just like cars, <laughs> right? They need maintenance and they need repair. Um, at the very least, they need maintenance. The tires need to be changed. The oil needs to be changed. It needs upkeep. Uh, they need to be tended to. Uh, one of the reasons, one of the things we know about good marriages is that they don't come on the cheap. Uh, they require that you put the effort in. Uh, because actually, while good marriages are better than they've ever been before, bad marriages are more frequent and worse than they've ever been before. Partially because of the expectations that people bring to their marriages. We bring much higher expectations uh, to our relationships, certainly than my parents did. Now, I am, uh, I'm responsible for one of the most unromantic marriage proposals in the history of humanity. Um, my, uh, my parents were divorced when I was 12. Some of you have had that experience as well. Um, some of you may be working on second marriages, but my parents had, it was not a volatile marriage. It was, uh, my, my dad, I would always say, was a great dad and not a particularly good husband, not because he was mean, he just didn't know how to, he was not at all, he's a very sweet, dear man. Um, he just did not know how to be emotionally present uh, and available to my mom who was longing for that. You know, there's a scene, some of you will remember this, you're old enough to have uh, watched this film, but Annie Hall with Woody Allen, he has this scene at the beginning, him and Diane Keaton are sitting on, on a bed and they're, they're talking to each other and he says, you know, a marriage is a lot, like a, it's a lot like a shark. It needs to keep on moving to stay alive. And what we have in our hands here is a dead shark. <laughs> and that was, that was my parents' relationship. It was just this dead shark of a relationship. 
And, um, and so my mother um, uh, left my father, and uh, interestingly enough, this is the early 70s, we, uh, strangely enough, at that era lived with my father rather than with my mother. But one thing I was determined to do was not repeat my parents' marriage. Um, I couldn't tell all the dynamics. I was too young to figure them out. But I knew once I, especially I'd come to faith as a freshman in college and um, certainly wanted to get married, I knew that I did not want to repeat that marriage. Again, not because it was some horrendous thing. It was not. But I, I could tell it certainly had not given my mother life. And, um, and so what I did... <laughs> This must have been junior year in college. Maybe it was my senior year in college. I typed out a 12-page, uh, on a typewriter, I know many of you use those, but many of you have not, uh, a 12-page uh, single-space typewritten paper on the nature and the purpose of marriage. And I had all these books in front of me. And, uh, and then the night I was going to ask my wife to marry me, we got in the car, and I handed her the paper. <laughs> And I said, hey, read this. Tell me what you think. Someone had let her on that I was going to ask her. So she says we was way too nervous to read it. But I still have that paper. And um, what's fascinating to me is that though certainly my uh, views on marriage have become nuanced over the years. And so I probably wouldn't subscribe to everything I wrote at that point in time. Much of it actually still resonates deeply with me. And that's what I want to do in our first session here is just go back to the beginnings. Because uh, when we go back and we ask, what's at the heart of marriage and what is marriage meant to deliver? It actually becomes a great diagnostic tool to evaluate our marriages, no matter how long we've been married. It remains a great diagnostic tool for me and Rebecca um, to, to continue to revisit these things that are at the heart of what God says marriage ought to be about and what it ought to deliver in our lives. And we can ask the question, is it delivering what it's supposed to deliver, or is it not? And so that's what we want to do in this first session. I'm going to begin by reading a passage, though, a well-known passage from Ephesians 5. I'm going to use Eugene Peterson's translation from the message, just because I think it captures uh, Paul's, you know, I, the message I can take or leave certain parts of it. He does Paul so well. Peterson does Paul so well. So this is Ephesians 5, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump in to this topic a bit. So this is what Paul writes. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, Go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring out the best in her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. No one abuses his own body, does he? No, he, he feeds and he pampers it. And that's how Christ treats us, the church. 
since we are part of his body. And that is why a man leaves father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one flesh. Now, this is a huge mystery, and I don't pretend to understand it all. But what is clearest to me is the way that Christ treats the church. And this provides a good picture of how each husband is to treat his wife, loving himself and loving her, and how each wife is to honor her husband. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for this evening together. Thanks for your word. Thanks for how you you both designed marriage and you want our marriages to flourish. And so, uh, Lord, as we come to this time of hopefully some measure of renewal, even if we've been at it a really long time, and some measure of maintenance and perhaps even repair, things that need to be repaired, uh, Lord, would you meet us in this time? We're pretty weak in and of ourselves, uh, not very good at living for others in and of ourselves. Uh, but your spirit can enable us to do that and can enable us to, to be convicted about things that we need to be convicted about. And above all, your spirit can enable us to love deeply and beautifully and well. And so uh, would you meet us towards that end? We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. A uh, couple other quick things. Uh, the, my talks are, seek to be designed both for married couples and also for singles. Uh, you'll find the questions that you're going to use um, around your tables. I have a couple that are designated for singles, so the singles in the group might want to find each other and work through those together, but uh, I'll explain that a little bit more. What tonight's not going to be great for is that if you're in a crisis in your marriage or even our couple of days, and some of you may be, um, and so, uh, you know, there's just all the reason in the world to do marriage counseling. It's not an admission of weakness. It's an admission of just being who we are as human beings. Um, again, I do a lot of crisis marriage counseling. It's one of my favorite things to do because uh, it doesn't often take a lot of counseling to make a real significant difference in a troubled marriage. Um, I practice what's called uh, short-term solution-based counseling. So I rarely see a couple for more than four to six sessions. And you'd be surprised how many things can be turned around in two or three sessions. And that, all that's simply to say, hey, we're trying to do sort of maintenance this evening and repair and like take a fresh look. But if you come and you have really significant things going on, well, by all means, come talk to me about that and maybe we can point you in a good direction. But I think even if you are in a crisis situation, uh, much of this material can be helpful for saying, okay, those are some things we need to keep in mind. Anyway, let's just jump into it. What's, uh, what's the heart of marriage? Well, some people would say love, and not a bad answer as answers go, but frequently we mean by that our emotional connection with each other, and as we all know, that comes and goes. <laughs> sometimes we you know, feel really passionate about one another, and sometimes we want to strangle each other, passionate in a different way. Um, uh, so... Uh, love, at least in the sense of emotional connection, is not at the heart of marriage. And um, sex, while an important part of marriage, is also not at the heart of marriage. Certain seasons were like rabbits, <laughs> other seasons like monks. And, uh, you know, we all go through the ups and downs of that. There's actually the most read article in the New York Times last year, one of the top 10 articles, was on sex in your 70s. Um, and so, uh, this is, you know, the things that people are still reflecting on and saying, you know, hey, how do we have a really thriving relationship uh, on, on all fronts? But again, sex isn't at the heart of marriage, and children are not either. Some people are able to have children. Um, my wife and I were, it turned out to be infertile, but eventually adopted some. But eventually, 
the children leave, or at least one hopes <laughs> that the children leave. Uh, mine keep on coming and going. Um, but, uh, but in any event, uh, you're then back to being yourselves again. So what's at the heart of marriage? And what I want to suggest to you, and many of you will know this, is it's, it's the promise. It's the vow. It's ultimately the piece of paper that you sign that embodies that promise on the day that you're married. And so when you made your vows, you said something like this, I, Jeff, take you, Rebecca, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and want and joy and sorrow and sickness and health as long as we both shall live. When you take that, and they're wonderful words, but you boil them down to their essence, here's the core. I will be there, and I will be for you. I will be there, I will be on your side. 101 things are going to change in this life. So much is unpredictable. But this one thing is going to stay the same. I will be there and I will be for you. Again, life's filled with unpredictabilities. But when you make a vow like that, what you do, according to Lewis Smedes, who has written beautifully on the subject of marriage and also on promising, he says you create an oasis of predictability in a completely unpredictable world. And it's such a great gift to give to another person, right? When, you know, we now have these uh, electronic devices in which they have calendars in them. And essentially, the day you get married, and if, you know, you can do it at any point in time if you need the reminder, but you can put in at the top of the day, be there before Susan, be there before Bill, and then you just put it on repeat indefinitely. <laughs> and that's your job every morning. When you wake up, I hope you realize that one of your chief vocations in life, whatever else you may do, one of the most important things you do if you're married is to let the other person know their worth and their value by being there and being for them. And, you know, that vow that you make, when you say it and you mean it, none of us, none of us live it out perfectly, but you do your best to live it out what does that do? It creates this place of refuge and safety and protection, a place that gives life unlike anything else on the planet. And of course, when anything goes wrong in marriage, I'm going to suggest to you that that's what's gone wrong. You know, a couple may come to me for 101 different reasons, but at the heart of it all is that either one or both of them are suspicious that their spouse is no longer on their side. Now, the spouse actually may be on their side, and they just may do a really horrible job of manifesting it. And therefore, again, these things can be addressed. But to actually get that across to your spouse, to know that is, that is at the core of what I'm called to do in this marriage is to let this person know I am for them. I am on their side. Um, and to, to live that out as well as you can, that's at the heart of it. Now, Mike Mason, who has written this great book on marriage called The Mystery of Marriage, has some great things to say about vows. Um, in particular, he says this. He says, to keep a vow does not mean to keep from breaking it. He says, if that were the case, marriage vows would be broken on the very day they were made. This is where a vow differs from a mere promise or a resolution. A resolution, once broken, must either be forgotten or made again. But a vow retains its power and validity, irrespective of conduct. It 
It's not like the signing of a legal contract and not like any form of human promise. A person cannot promise to love another person. He can only vow to do so. A vow is per se a confession of inadequacy and an automatic calling upon the only adequacy there is, which is the mercy and power of God. And then he goes on to say this. To keep a vow, therefore, means not to keep from breaking it, but rather to devote the rest of one's life to discovering what the vow means. Isn't that beautiful? We're still on this discovery process. I'm still trying to figure it out 38 years in. Some of you are still trying to figure it out 50 years in. Others of you are just on the, the beginning of the path. But this is the thing that you are setting out to do, to discover what that vow means. What does it really mean to be there and be for this other person, to be on their side? Because if I figure that out, I am, I'm going to be a life giver. <laughs> right? And that's actually... I would say part of the key vocation of a person who's a follower of Jesus in all our relationships is to give life to others. In any event, he goes on, he says, it might also be said that the sign that a vow is being kept is the realization of how far one is from keeping it. In a very real way, it is the vow which keeps the man rather than vice versa. A vow may keep a man honest, for example, by facing him day in and day out with the depth of his insincerity. And he may be kept loving through a continual confrontation with his own unloveliness. The vow is a mystery, an insoluble riddle, which somehow corrects and shames him at the same time as it picks him up and spurs him on to higher things. So there's your core vocation, the essence of marriage, this vow. I will be there, I will be for you. And those of you who've been married a long time know the unpredictabilities that come your way. Uh, some of you have made it through really difficult times, didn't know how you were going to make it out. Uh, there's other things that come our way, tragedies that come into our life. Again, whether in the, our case, uh, infertility or maybe disease comes into your life. Um, uh, there's just all these unpredictabilities that are before us. But to be able to say, over the next number of years, a number of things might change, and I have no control over that. Here's the one thing I have control over. This is the one predictable thing. I will be there and I will be for you. What a powerful thing to say to another person. That's probably not the primary way that many of our peers who are not followers of Christ think about their marriages. We have a very different understanding of marriage in our own day now, which is mostly about self-actualization. Marriage is designed to make me the person that I want to be. And if it's not any longer fulfilling that role, then I need to get out of it. But uh, Christ calls us to something different. But that doesn't mean to be just satisfied with our marriages, right? We want to keep on pressing in, and that's why we have this community around us to help. You know, when I do a wedding, I actually have the whole congregation make vows. <laughs> I say, you know, simply, hey, uh, life-giving marriage is more than the product of a couple's love. Life-giving marriages survive in the context of a supportive community. You need each other. Uh, to do this well, no matter how long you've been at it. Um, so that's the heart of it. A lot more to say about that promise that's at the heart of it, but we'll leave it at that because I don't want to go on too long. So what is marriage meant to deliver? If that's the heart, what's, what's it meant to deliver in our lives? I want to suggest to you somewhat quickly three primary things that marriage is meant to deliver. The first is this. It's meant to deliver joy through the experience of intimacy. Now, intimacy is one of those terms that we throw around and we all know it seems like a good thing, but we're not sure what it is. <laughs> what is intimacy? Well, for some people, it's the experience of closeness. 
feeling close to another person. Uh, there is that, that sense that, oh yeah, you know, we, you know we're, we're bound up with each other. Now that, much like the feeling of love, comes and goes. So we don't have control always over that subjective sense of intimacy. And so therefore, there's an, also an objective sense of intimacy, which is both knowing and being known by another person. And that takes work. Um, marriage is, you know, I, when I do premarital counseling with people and I teach it in a seminar format first, I usually just say, having a good marriage is the hardest thing that you will ever do. Uh, harder than being a brain science surgeon, harder than being a rocket scientist, actually having a life-giving marriage for a lifetime uh, is something that requires your continual attention and uh, because of the things that are wrong in us and the things that are wrong in the other person and we all got all sorts of baggage in our lives, um, it takes quite a bit of effort to actually have in an ongoing way throughout a lifetime a marriage that sings, a marriage that is flourishing. Um, and so, uh, actually, this aspect of intimacy is not static, right? You're just not plain intimate. It's dynamic. It, it, it requires continual attention, continual nurturing. We used to have this plant in a, um, in a bathroom in one church I worked at, and uh, there was no windows in this bathroom. And uh, there was a plant in there that my mother had given me, and... Uh, it was almost impossible to kill. You could actually not water it for weeks on end. It received no light, hardly ever. That thing lived for years. Um, uh, easy to keep alive, hard to kill. That is not marriage. <laughs> marriage is hard to keep alive and easy to kill. It's like my mother's African violets, which required just the right amount kind of soil, just the right amount of light, just the right amount of water, too much light, too much water, dead. That is much more like marriages, particularly, again, a life-giving marriage. And so it, to maintain an intimate relationship requires effort. What, what, what else is bound up with intimacy? Well, Wendy Wallerstein, who has written a book called The Good Marriage, says that when you get married, the, uh, what, what takes place is you develop, and this is very helpful, you develop a third entity. It's, it's a third thing. It's the relationship. It's neither me nor you. It's this new thing that has been given birth to, not unlike giving birth to a child, right? And if you have young children, or many of you have had them in the past, when the baby cries in the middle of the night, not there lying next to your spouse and give her an elbow and say, your baby's crying. <laughs> you don't do that. You say, our baby's crying. It belongs to both of you. And together you try to do something about it, or one of you does, but you make a plan, and it's on the two of you to do that. Wallerstein says, when you get married, what you do is you create this third entity, and it's neither you nor me, it's the relationship, and it requires its own attention, it requires its own development and cultivation. And, you know, you know you are developing that, she says, when you start to change your grammar. You don't talk about, I did this, and then this happened to me, but you say, we did this, and then this happened to us, and then we did this thing. It's, it's a life lived together. And you see, when you actually see it as this thing that needs to be nurtured, quite apart from you or the spouse, it means, for instance, when you have a fight, it's not, well, I went my way, or you, know, or you went your way, but what's best for the relationship, right? Not what's best for me. What's best for the relationship? And it may not be what's best for you or for me, 
but it is what's going to cause this new thing that we've created to thrive and to grow. You know, when we're in intimate relationship, what we've done essentially is we've allowed another person into the orbit of our life so that what happens to them matters as much as what happens to us. I'm not sure we ever entirely achieve that, selfish sons of guns that we are, but that's what we're trying to do. That's where we're trying to arrive at that place where what happens to my spouse, and this can be true in friendships too, right? In fact, we can simply say uh, people can absolutely live without marriage. People can absolutely can live without sex. People cannot live without intimacy. So we all need people who are playing that role of making us feel our worth and our value um, and who allow us into the orbit of our life and who we allow into the orbit of our life so that we're saying, you do have worth. You, you are significant. You count. And we ought to be saying that to each other in our marriage relationships. So, intimacy. We're going to talk more tomorrow morning about the rituals of intimacy and the rituals of connection, which I think is super important. So, but we'll... we'll Leave more of the how-tos till tomorrow. Second thing that marriage is meant to deliver, as God designed it, is transformation, change. Uh, it's meant to make us a different person than who we were coming into marriage. You know, one of the things that drives me crazy in counseling is when I'll be talking to a couple, and, um, and I can see that there's an issue in this person's life, and they'll just say this. Well, that's the way I am. I'll say, well, good luck with that, because the way you are is not very good. It's not very helpful for your marriage at all. There was this woman one time, you know, she just, um, you know, she was a fairly flat-lined, sort of not particularly emotional person, so her husband would come in the door, and she just would hardly greet him at all, and, and he, he, he really longed for just some sense of life, that she was somewhat happy to see me come through the door, and, you know, she tried to, you know, well, that's just the way I am lying on me. And I said, no, that is not just the way you are. That may be in part your personality, but your personality does not control your behavior. You can actually behave differently from how you feel. That's part of what it means to be a human being. The animal kingdom is in bondage to their emotions and their instincts and their hormones. Human beings have greater freedom than that. We can actually do things outside of what we feel. Frequently find that our feelings soon follow. But simply to say, marriage is meant to change us. And if you go in being calcitrant, determined not to change, well, not only are you not allowing marriage to do what it's meant to do in your life, but you're going to be a miserable person to live with as well. So, and again, that change goes on. As we well know, Christian life never ends. The, the change, the work that God needs to do in us uh, never draws to a close. We make most, the most minuscule um, advancement towards what we, God longs for us to be throughout this life that we live. So there's always more to do. But marriage is meant to transform us, change us. What we need to know, of course, is that much of that transformation takes place not through encouragement, as nice as that is when it happens, but most of it happens through conflict. Okay? Uh, and it's like uh, when I was a kid, we had these uh, rock tumblers, and some of you had them as well. I think they still sell them, but you would take rocks out of your mom's flower bed and you'd put it into this little red jar and you'd put water in there in this white compound and you'd screw this brass lid on top of it and you'd put it on a lathe and you'd send it to spinning for 48 hours or so and what went in as these dirty, dingy, rough, somewhat ugly rocks came out as these semi-pretty, semi-lustrous, semi-shiny, semi-smooth rocks, right? 
which you made into a necklace, but no one ever wore it. But, um, but it, what was going on inside there is what were the rocks doing? They were grinding against each other and bumping up against each other and, you know, smashing into one another. And that was the very process in which the change was taking place. Now, what you need to recognize, of course, in marriage is your conflict is not primarily with the other person. We want to talk tomorrow significantly about how to fight as well, because uh, in my experience, lots of people are not very good at it. And if they could learn that skill, their marriages would be far sweeter. And so we want to look at how to fight tomorrow. But conflict as it may be, we need to recognize that many of our conflicts are primarily not with the other person. They're primarily with ourselves, our own irritability, our own impatience, our own selfishness. And so this person comes into our life and we think the conflict is with them, but actually they're just drawing out the flaws that are inside of us. So if you look at a bridge with the naked eye, you can't really see the flaws in it. But if you have the right instruments and you run a Mack truck over top of the bridge, the flaws will be visible. And you think of your partner, therefore, if you will, as the Mack truck on the bridge that is your life. <laughs> and every day, they come rolling over you and grinding over you. And they're just bringing out the things in you that need to be changed. The wise person recognizes that, recognizes that, does not get angry in all their conflicts, but actually takes Jesus seriously, remove the log from your own eye before you remove the speck from your sister, your brother's eye, change yourself first. Doesn't mean there's not changes to happen in the other person. Of course there are. And they may even be more significant than yours, but you dare not start there. So, meant to bring transformation. Last thing that marriage is meant to bring, and then we'll break up into both first couples for a little while, then tables, or groups of singles, and then back to the tables. But is marriage is meant to, well, there's lots of ways to put this, but it's meant to be a means of our making a difference in the world. Which is to say, uh, marriage is in its very core missional. Uh, at the very least, Paul tells us, it's a picture to the watching world of Christ in the church. And so the way you carry out your marriage is meant to tell something about to people around us about what the gospel is, about God's unfailing commitment to us, how he loves us when we're enemies because sometimes your spouse is an enemy and you're called to love them. Uh, so to, to do that, but also, um, if your marriage is just about your own personal peace and affluence, if it's just about your happiness, it will shrink pretty quickly. Um, and it will, in some ways, bore you over time. But if you can see that there is a broader, bigger story that the Bible calls the kingdom of God, that your marriage is meant to be participating in, well, I want to suggest to you that that ad- adds a sense of adventure and nobility and radiance that is absolutely necessary in a marriage, you know, when Adam and Eve are put in the garden and Adam is told it's, it's not good for man to be alone, we sometimes think it's because of his loneliness. But that's actually not what the text entirely says. Because he needs a companion to work the garden. It's the work that's in front of him to sort of Edenize the entire creation, which was ultimately Adam and Eve's call was, yes, to tend that garden, but by being fruitful and multiplying, to see what was only the kingdom in germ form now become the kingdom that Jesus spoke of, the kingdom of God. And, of course, Jesus has come into our lives and into our world and into our marriages in order that kingdom realities might be seen right there as we help transform one another, which is part of the purpose of marriage, and we make a difference in each other's lives. 
but also through hospitality, through caring for the hurting, through the way we use our money, through 101 different things, uh, we are meant to make a difference in the world. And that leads to this simple definition of marriage, which I will uh, leave you with before we go to our groups, which is simply this. Uh, one of the ways I like to define marriage is that it is a companionship in which we journey together through the ups and downs of life before the face of God, seeking to live a life that matters, seeking to make a difference. Marriage is a companionship, an intimate companionship, if you will, in which we journey through the ups and downs of life on your side, right? Predictable, be there before you. We journey through the ups and downs, the unpredictabilities of life before the face of God, seeking to make a difference. And therefore, this reminder, of course, and I think I have a couple of these quotes in your, uh, your handout, which is that marriage is not so much a vehicle that God that God gives to us to serve us as it is a vehicle that God gives to us to serve him, right? And, and that, again, is a very different understanding of certainly the, what our world understands marriage. Marriage is not given to us so much to serve us as it's given to us as a vehicle through which we can serve God. What I want you to do now is first, if you're a couple and you're here, uh, there's some questions there. They said questions for couples, and then there's something that says, says I think, questions for the table. So say something like that. What do I have here? Um, yes, for couples or singles and small groups for table sharing. So if you're just a couple, work through some of these questions. I'm going to give you about 10 minutes to work through the questions. And then after 10 minutes of working through them as a couple, 7 to 10 minutes, I'm going to say, okay, now as a table, discuss the table questions. Let's enjoy each other, enjoy the time. If you are single, um, and I don't know how many single people are here, um, just come to this table right here, table six, and, uh, and, and go through the questions. Um, many of them work just as well for singles as they do for couples, but every once in a while you'll see I've thrown in a question that is particularly for singles. I believe you're really smart enough to figure that out. Go to it, and I'll see you in a few minutes. They've actually demonstrated in significant ways that they, they aren't on our side, and then the relationship starts to fall apart. A great exercise, by the way, for those of you who are couples here, to do uh, quite apart from our time together is this simple thing. List the top three things that when your spouse does them, or things that you would like them to do, the top three things you'd like them to do, they may do them already somewhat, but that really make you feel like they are on your side. And then, uh, and then share those with each other. Hey, here's, you know, when you do this and you do this and you do this, I really feel like you're for me. Uh, and then the slightly riskier thing to do <laughs> is the three things they do that make you feel like they are not on your side, right? So, which is actually really important as well in marriages because, again, there are things that my wife wants me to do that really makes her feel like I'm for her, but there's also things she definitely does not want, wants me to not do because when I do those, she feels like, oh, yeah, I don't feel like you're for me at all whenever you do that. So looking at both the positive things as, and majoring in those and then eliminating the negative things. But you know, that's true in friendships as well. Uh, we can say, hey, here are the things that when we do them as friends, this makes me really feel like you're on my side. But when you do this, it really makes me feel like you're not for me. 
And again, we need that, I think, to thrive as human beings. The only second thing I wanted to say to wrap up that first talk before we go into questions is that these really are, they may seem abstract, these categories, but I would suggest that they're not at all, right? To be able to say, oh yeah, how are we feeling about, is there suspicion lurking? And why is there suspicion lurking perhaps in our relationship? Uh, Could be all sorts of different things. Really things that the one person may not be aware of at all. uh, but then each of those other categories, hey, are we experiencing intimacy? Do, do you feel like we're catching each other up on day in and day out stuff and our joys and, and uh, our, the pain thing, painful things in our lives? Are, are we, do, we, do you feel connected to me? Like, you know, there'll be times when my wife have, over the years has said to me, um, yeah, you know, you're doing all the things you're supposed to do but it doesn't feel like you're here. Not, not, not present to me in any way that really matters. And uh, so, you know, the sort of wake up little statements of, you know, me not providing the emotional availability. We're gonna talk about that tomorrow when we talk about rituals, but those kinds of things. But yeah, are we, are we helping each other to change? Or are we actually just saying, hey, don't touch my idols, I won't touch yours. <laughs> Which a lot of times we say, don't mess with the things that you know, are problematic in my life and I won't mess with the things that are problematic in your life. And then lastly, hey, are we living in a way that's making a difference in the world? You know, One of my wife's and my favorite things to do is to figure out how much money we can give away. Um, rather than living with the mentality of how much do I have to give away, you know, as we've gotten older and have more disposable income, you know, at certain times, of course, it's super tight and some of you might be at that place. But uh, as you, as life goes on, sometimes, at least for certain seasons, you say, hey, let's try to give 20 or 25% of our income away this year. It, it actually, when we do that kind of thing, it really adds a sense of, again, joy, adventure uh, into our lives. So, but that happens with hospitality. It's one of the things we love to do most together is, inviting people in and making other people feel their value and their worth. Uh, All these things that we should be looking outside of ourselves as we seek to be God's ambassadors, Christ's ambassadors in the world. With those things said, questions. You can either raise your hand or do you have any? Go ahead. Okay, so just because of the first round. Yes. um, I've got a question for you that's already been texted in. We have microphones here, so if you wanna raise your hand, we'll come to your table. We'll see how that works. Um, If you have a card, and you just like, I've written my question out, hand it to me or Josh, and we can hand it to Jeff. Um, so to get started, um, here's a question. Um, doesn't the de- definition of marriage, a companionship, as you started out um, on, your, on the sheet, a companionship, this is essentially also apply to close friendship. So someone might say, we have this already, why get married? So mm. how would you distinguish between Yeah, so... Marriage is more than just an intense friendship. That is important to realize. There, um, marriage is, involves a friendship. You ought to be friends with your spouse. Um, and, and they should be one of your best friends. I always think the notion that you have to have a best friend seems rather silly to me. But you know, we usually have multiple relationships that really give us life, and most of us need multiple relationships like that. But here's how a friendship and a marriage differs in that friendships aren't exclusive. In fact, you need lots of friendships and they're by their very nature not exclusive. As a matter of fact, to have other friends frequently enriches the friendships that you do have, 
right? So, so friendships in that sense are not, ex- are not exclusive relationships, and therefore it's a different entity than marriage uh, because marriage is an exclusive relationship, you, and it is meant for the long haul. Friendships do come and go for all sorts of reasons, and there's, there's fine reasons that they go, there's sad reasons that they go, but friendships are not always lifelong. I have some lifelong friends, but I have lots of friends that have been friends for five years, then they've left my life, they enriched me for a while, hopefully I enriched them, that was a great thing, but marriage is a different, uh, different animal. Um, it, it does involve exclusivists, exclusivity, I said that horribly, just doesn't come out tonight, but, and then, uh, and then it, it involves being committed for the long haul, right, so. But we need lots of companionships. In fact, I don't think marriages thrive very well without having other friendships that feed us as a person that then keep our marriage rich. Other questions? From the floor, if you want to raise your hand and just call it out, that's okay to me as well. What were some of the things that were coming out at your tables? Yes, please, go ahead. So I'm a long-timer. My husband and I have been married for several years, decades actually. And um, I don't think it occurred to us until pretty recently, marriage is ministry. Like, it just was not on my radar when I was engaged that I'm thinking that I'm going to be in ministry with my husband, and that was intentional. It's worked out that way. But it wasn't like I walked into it thinking, wow, how are we going to serve Christ together as a couple? You know, it was more just like, yes, we're Christians, we're getting married, and of course we're going to serve Christ. But the intentionality behind it and sort of how can we serve was not... um, kind of evolved it was not intentional like is this like a new conversation we're having with people and young married couples I do weddings and I have a young daughter you know who's so is this like a newer way of approaching this or did I just miss something the memo you know 20 something years ago because it has evolved into that we do serve together but it was not something that we conversed about that I can remember even our premarital counseling and we did six months of that so I don't know yeah, yeah, so, I mean, probably it, it you know, I'd, it's certainly not a new conversation in the sense that people for, you know, in lots of circles have recognized that that's quite important to have that kind of life together because, again, you know, when you look at divorce, for instance, and it may seem a crazy thing to bring up, but a lot of times people get divorced just because they do get bored of one another. They've had all the adventures they could have by just sort of building each other up and helping each other along. And there's a lot of annoying things that are, you know, are never quite leave our relationships, you know. Um, you know, one of the things when I do premarital counseling is I always ask couples, what are the two things that annoy you most about this person you're about to marry? And somewhat shocks and horrifies the people I'm asking that. But if they can't be honest about that, I actually have real fears for them going forward. And we're going to talk again about some of those things tomorrow. But there, there are things, of course, that don't, don't change very much in us. And uh, we'd love to see that, you know, I, I always tell couples, hey, listen, just if this intimidates you, Rebecca and I have been married 38 years. If you asked us what two things would we, you know, if you, the way I ask it also is like, if I gave you a magic wand, what two things would you change about the other person? That's a nice way to do it. 
And, uh, but I usually say, hey, we would change 10 things about each other right away. We'd like take us no time at all to think what they were either. Um, that's just the reality of our relationship and that's okay. She bears with my faults, I bear with her faults. That is actually part of marriage, is learning to bear with each other's faults. Uh, but simply to say, if that's all you're ever doing and you don't have this grander sense of, I, we have a greater purpose together. I, I do think that that often lends itself to more of like, hey, I just can't do this relationship anymore because this is all about me rather than, oh, no, this is actually about something bigger and be- more beautiful that I'm involved in and that we're involved in together. Right? So I don't, I don't know whether you missed the memo or whether, you know, I don't know that everyone highlights it in the same way, but I would suggest that it's very much a biblical notion and is actually bound up in the very creation, the Genesis 1, Genesis 2 narrative. Um, other things that happened at your tables, what was the stuff that was coming out in the discussions? What was, what was helpful? What was striking you? What was maybe a new thought to some of you or a refreshing thought or came at you in a new way? And feel free to call out. Let's just have a nice discussion together. There you go, please, yeah. I'm Jean, and thank you, Jeff, for coming tonight. Um, I've never married before. I'm a single person, never married. Um, But one thing that did come out of our discussion, and it's actually some two things that I shared. Uh, So when somebody's married, when somebody clearly says, in sickness, health, richer or poorer, and I have two examples of men who lost their spouses recently. I'm sorry if I get teary-eyed about it. It was They had some very difficult circumstances. Um, one of my f- friends, he lost his wife to Alzheimer's disease. She battled Alzheimer's for 10 years. And even through all that, he stood by her side. Never left her. Cheerfully just served her, just there for her. And my other friend lost his wife to Alzheimer's disease, I mean, I'm sorry, to ALS, which is maybe a couple months ago. One of the things I admired about my friend is that he said leaving was not an option. Even though it's hard, he said he knows he can't leave because he loves her. So I think those are real examples of what marriage, um, of a committed marriage, when they, both of these men kept their marriage vows. But I just have a kind of a sensitive question, though. It's like for somebody like me who is never married, who has some sort of like subtle pressure because, you know, people are saying, well, so when you get married, so when is your turn? And I'm already 55, and I, I get kind of defensive a little bit. And I say, well, you know, maybe this is just, you know, I just want to be single and leave me alone and all that. But I just don't know how to like politely address people when they ask me that. Because I already know why I don't want to get married. But I just have to be careful just to not, you know, snap at people or, you know, get yeah. defensive about it. Yes. So, you know, first of all, thank you for sharing the examples of the couple, the committed couples. Elaine Storkey has this book called In Search of Intimacy. And she talks about a particular man who never looked like he was all that intimate with his wife. He was more gruff, you know, like a little quiet. But said when, when she got into a condition like that, he was just the most tender. You know, it showed a side that was there in the relationship, but it wasn't always manifested, right? And that's a, that can be a beautiful thing. And as we age, of course, that is 
you know, there is this, the sacrifices required there. Um, and part of living this out beautifully in the world to, to the people around us. Again, we have a unique job of offering a picture to the world of, of Christ's relationship to the church. And that's one of the places that comes out. In terms of the other situation, you know, first of all, it's good that you don't snap at people <laughs> when they ask you the question. Because like even for us, for all of us, those things that draw out that stuff in us are things that we want to keep on working on ourselves. Of course, the church does, let's face it, a horrible job at um, understanding singleness and recognizing that Paul sees it as a really wonderful and good thing. Um, I think, you know, on the one hand, you know, plenty of people who are single want to get married, and it's not because they have the gift of singleness. In other words, we just think about, need to think about these things carefully in the church. Just because you're single doesn't mean you have the gift of singleness, right? It means you're single and you should use that as a gift, but it's not necessarily something that you would want if you had the option to do something different. And so we need to be sensitive to each other that people who are single, first of all, there's nothing abnormal about it. Paul was single, right? And lived that out and so, and says it's good to be single. Um, and, and on the other hand, we need to be sensitive to say, hey, this is something that various people would like. Companionship is a good thing. And then we need to, again, just recognize that great friendships uh, as couples with singles are, is important too. Like, in other words, we need to be mixing it up, right? Like, so at Redeemer, for instance, we have social events pretty regularly that um, uh, we, we call them community group socials. They're for our, everyone who's in our small groups. But uh, it's singles and couples together at those. We frankly do them at a bar in the city or something like that. But it's a way of not turning it just into these singles events, but instead, hey, we're together as family and let's, let, you know, this is an opportunity for people who are, again, in a Manhattan situation where many people are single, meet each other in a, in a healthy, um, so non-icky way, as it were. And, um, and yet the rest of us are there with each other, you know, just being family together. So I think people just need to recognize, yeah, this is where you are right now. Um, God's built, that's the other thing to say, God's built a lot of freedom into the world, you know, which is to say people have choices to either marry or not marry, to ask someone or not. And I, I certainly think that many people don't get married that probably should get married, which is to say they maintain their non-committal stance. It's not for people who want to. It's people who are just saying, ah, that commitment thing is not for me. I'm not sure that they're not harming themselves as well as others in that process. But still, we want to just recognize, yes, singleness and married life belongs together in the body of Christ. Uh, other things that were talked about at your tables. Yeah, please. Got a mic there. Oh, sure. um, do I have to stand up? You don't, but you can do whatever you want to do. Hello. All right. My name is Sam Hempel. Hey, Sam. Um, I guess my biggest thing is when you're thinking of the three things that you're going to expect out of a marriage, I, I struggle with, and I appreciate, and I see that it actually becoming this, but the making a difference in God's world. Um, why does that differ from being single? Because you're, I would think if we're going to be talking about marriage, it's something that should be subject to 
something that me and my spouse are going to undergo together that we wouldn't outside of marriage. Whether, you know, if I wanted to help out with the youth as a single person uh, or have her as a married couple help me. Yeah. But why is that, like, of the three things, of everything you can pick in marriage, that one of those things? Yeah, so first of all, absolutely it is the same for being single. And as, as individuals, we ought to be seeking to make a difference. I just think that too often in our culture, couples think, well, this is just about us and not about us together. So it's just recognizing that, again, Adam and Eve in the garden have tasks to do, right? And I, that notion that, hey, you need a, a super a suitable helper is, you know, again, not just, it's a helper, right? It's so we can do stuff together and caring for the world. I just think many couples get insular, and so that's why I think it's important to highlight. Not that it's exclusive to couples anymore that's, a, you know, exclusive to singles, but I don't think couples build that in to their relationship, and I think a lot of them, it's about just, you know, our personal peace and affluence, getting more stuff, you know, the next house, the next house, rather than saying, is our life counting together in the world? Would you say that you have to do that together, though? Um, you certainly don't have to do everything together by any stretch of the imagination. No, you can have all sorts of things that you do separately. Rebecca and I certainly do. But I, I think one of the things that actually does build the relationship is doing at least some things together. And some things you can't help but do together. In other words, you give your money together away, for instance. So it's just recognizing that that is part of the dynamic that's going on. Not that you don't do things separately from each other making a difference also. Because I guess my argument is, wouldn't also Adam and Eve taking care of the land also be their job? So instead of just being a ministry, wasn't that just their job, like I go to work? Like, aren't I doing my part? To be sure, but I would say, ultimately, our jobs are about loving people as well, if we understand them correctly. You know, they're first and foremost about caring for God's world and loving others, not about, you know, they do make us a salary, but that's, that's not what they're chiefly about. So, thanks for that, though. Those are good, great clarifying questions. Hi, I'm Brecht. Um, I have a question that wasn't really brought up in the table, but just something that kind of came to mind um, in this definition of marriage as companionship in which we journey together through life's up and downs before the face of God, striving to live a life that matters. So it's kind of interesting. Um, I have maybe four or five friends that I'm like super close with. And coincidentally, within the last 10 days, two of them got engaged recently. And neither of them are believers. Uh, neither are uh, the girls that they got engaged to. However, um, it was made very clear just, you know, through our friendship over the last couple of years that they kind of have looked to my wife and I as kind of like examples or, or we've kind of been like the reference point of what being kind of like in your 20s and married in today's world can look like. Um, but when they ask for advice or, or thoughts on, you know, how to approach it or how to think about it, um, I have a hard time giving recommendations or advice because I kind of have to mentally delete the before the face of God part. So um, I was just wondering, like, how would you recommend, you know, coaching or just being a good friend? Yeah, to great question. Friend? And I actually hesitated to put before the face of God in there, just so you know, because marriage is not a Christian institution. It's a, it's a creation ordinance, not a Christian 
ordinance. So it belongs to all of humanity, not simply to Christians. That's mostly for this audience to recognize that that's what you're doing. But I think it's absolutely fine to say to another person, hey, here's my understanding of marriage is that it's a companionship in which we journey through the ups and downs together trying to make a difference, right? I, I think it's a great thing to say to uh, friends who don't share the same faith with you. Right. So, and I guess I, a conversation that I find myself with them sometimes is I kind of try to gauge how much, I guess, I don't know, of a spiritual or metaphysical bearing they kind of put on their marriage. And what I've gotten out of them, which is kind of interesting, is that they both come from backgrounds where they kind of, their worldview is that they kind of like respect and admire Christianity as kind of like a good set of values, et cetera, but they don't really want to adhere to it. Um, so it's almost like they're, they're kind of are asking for Christian type advice without really telling them, you know, repent, believe the gospel, that kind of thing. Um, so is there a, like some kind of specific language that you would kind of use to, to, to address these kinds of things without directly telling them, you know, if you're not going to be a believer, if this isn't really going to be a part of your marriage, I, I can't really. Yeah, you no, you can always help people. Like I do lots of marriage counseling with, um, with non-Christians, uh, not just with Christians. So people will refer their friends to me with some regularity. And yet the problems we face are the same problems, right? How do we fight well? You know, how do we forgive? Now, ultimately, those will, uh, will, will potentially lead to spiritual questions, right? So how do, I, how do you forgive, right? Well, you know, for a Christian, it's a unique thing, right? It's because Christ has forgiven me. How do you actually love, you know, in a way that actually isn't just mostly about you getting your needs met and just loving to the degree that you get your needs met, but as opposed to sacrificially? Well, again, for a Christian, you say, well, it's because I don't love you on the basis of your love for me. I love you on the basis of Christ's love for me. Those are just nice, beautiful evangel or evangelistic conversations we can have if it gets to that. You know, Obviously, you can't force those issues with people. We, believe Christ we, we preach Christianity as true. We speak it to our friends uh, because we believe it's true, right? Not because it's necessarily always helpful or even feels good, you know? So those, are, those things have to be separated out a little bit from one another. But I do certainly think that when you have a Christian understanding of marriage, which is, again, it's not just about my self-actualization, right? It's, a, it's, uh, it's something richer and deeper than that. Just to, be a, hey, just to be able to share in this pluralistic world, here's how we view it, you know? Um, some of you might have seen the... Um, with Tim and uh, we did a, a video series called The Meaning of Marriage. And I was the moderator in that and we specifically had non-Christians in the discussion because we were trying to, you know, have that as a, a thing that, that uh, Christians and non-Christians could watch together and sort of wrestle through, hey, how are we viewing marriage differently and what difference does the Christian light or the, the Christian resources bring to bear on marriage? Um, one last question, and okay, yes, please. Um, just quickly, when we talk about, um, and this is coming from my smoking hot husband back here, who's super <laughs> um, when we talk about like this idea that um, behind every concern is lurking, is this person on my side, 
and for me or not, um, I think it could be very easy to um, distort that. And could you just speak a little towards um, what does on my side really mean? And is this person, what is, is this person great, great point. for I got me you. really mean? I got you. I got you. Um, it could get distorted in a couple of different ways, I suppose. But yeah, it's actually for your real genuine good and not just what you want also, right? So when my wife criticizes me or critiques me, <laughs> she is, I, you know, she always says, you never like it when I critique you. I said, duh. <laughs> like, I'm supposed to like that? Uh, you know, but, but I, I know it's important. I know it's really important to our relationship. I know she's being on my side when she does it, at least in a good majority of cases. She's, she's being on my side. Probably not every single one of them. But, uh, but you know, so, so yes, being on a person's side can mean having hard conversations, letting them know your frustrations, your disappointments, that they have not met expectations that you expect them to meet. Again, we'll talk about a lot of these things tomorrow. But um, so yeah, it's not just all sweetness and light on your side. Love has sharp edges, right? Love doesn't have just soft, cushy, soft edges. It's, it's, it's got sharp things to it as well. It can also get distorted by the, by, in the other direction, right? I mean, like, you just take something, some simple things, you know, leaving your socks on the floor, or leaving your dirty dishes in the sink, or uh, leaving your fruit peels on the counter, which is one of my wife's favorite things to do. Um, uh, like, we, I don't always, I find that annoying, but I don't think, oh, you're not on my side, you know, in those situations. <laughs> but sometimes, if there is something that's been asked again and again and again, that does become the haunting question there a little bit. You know, you keep on doing this, and you know it really bothers me. Are, are you really, because this is not that hard to change, are, are you... You know, if, if you really were for me, you would, I think, make a little bit more effort at that and then maybe not get it right all the time. So there's tricky little things there. Right? Let's go to the next talk really quickly. And this will be uh, pretty fast, I think. And this was initially designed, at least in part, for, um, for not only the singles that would be among us, but also as you are helping, maybe it's children, maybe it's other friends in your life, uh, which is the simple question, what qualities do each of us need to bring into a marriage for that marriage to really sing, for it, for it to, to, to blossom and be life-giving to us? And essentially what we're asking here is, uh, what should the list look like, right? When, prior to getting married, everyone has a list. This is what I'm looking for in my spouse. Everyone has one. The question is whether you have the right one or the wrong one. And actually, even having been married for years and years, you can look back and say, did I have the right list? And some of you already know that you didn't entirely <laughs> have the right list in every uh, jot and tittle. But you can also say, hey, you know what? I am not that kind of person. I can increasingly work at becoming the kind of person I need to be for us to have a flourishing relationship. So this conversation can be pretty broad along those lines. But uh, a couple years ago, New York Times had an article. It was uh, about a woman looking for a relationship. And um, it, it was, I think it was called uh, something of the myth of the, the no drama relationship. And, um, and she said, you know, she was like on a, a site and looking for, you know, a potential partner. And he said, he said something to the effect of, 
looking for a no drama relationship. And she said, I thought about that for a second. I thought, that's probably the kind of person that if I had a, was struggling with a problem, they wouldn't pay very much attention to me, and I immediately swiped left. Um, which is to say, there is no such thing as a no drama relationship. We bring our fallen and broken selves into our relationships. And there's a certain sense, of course, in which uh, once you get married, you know, you've, you haven't known everything about the person that you could know. It's, uh, it's a lot like, you know, when you go to the grocery store and there's a package of strawberries there and it's got a clamshell on it and there's a rubber band wrapped around it. And you, you know, on the one hand, you look at the top, you look at the bottom, but you're sure there's something furry growing in the middle of all that, right? And you're just not sure how far the fur is spread. Um, and uh, that's kind of how it is with all of us, right? We get into marriage and we realize, oh, you know, I know a lot about this person, but I didn't know everything that there was to know. And so things come up and we discover things again in ourselves that need to be changed. But this is um, my attempt at the list. And I've been using this with singles for years and years. I think it's pretty foolproof, but you're welcome to poke, poke holes in it if you like. Um, so here's what I think the li- everyone ought to have as their list. Um, Everyone. <laughs> um, and I've just divided them, taking the biblical phrase, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave into his wife, and divided them into leaving categories and cleaving categories. And so what are the leaving categories? Well, the first on the face of it is leave mother and father, which is to say you become a new decision-making unit without any other votes, right? If there's a, a third vote smuggled in, It's there illicitly, it shouldn't be there. There's only two votes in a marriage, right? Your parents don't get a vote, and actually once you have children, your children don't get a vote, at least in the same way that the two of you have a vote. But it's about saying, you know, one of the things that comes up in marriages again and again is he or she seems to be prioritizing their family of origin over the two of us, and that poisons a relationship. And so one of the things you're simply asking is, hey, is this person able to emotionally leave? Have I emotionally left if you're already in a marriage? Or am I subtly perhaps even making other people a priority over my spouse and leaving them feeling like, oh, you don't prioritize me. I'm not the most important person in your life. And I think that's what should be the case, that your spouse should be the most important person in your life. Doesn't mean there's not lots of other important people. And that sometimes we we tend to them and our spouse feels the weight of that, but they still know that ultimately they're the the priority, right? So there's that kind of of leaving that needs to be done. Have you made me a priority? Or do you have secondary things that, uh, tertiary things that ought to be secondary or tertiary, but they seem to be taking my place? Uh, quite honestly, my wife sometimes feels that about my passion for golf. Um, and we have to work that through from time to time. And it, you know, from time to time, it may be true. And I say, hey, you know, let, let's talk about that. I don't want you to ever feel like you're second to that, even though I got here early so I could go on the University of Maryland golf course. Um, true, I played in the cold weather today. Um, but so that leaving mother and father, but priority issue. Secondly, Financial uh, leaving, which means not only that you have enough to, to make it on your own, but you recognize this is our money, not my money and your money, 
but our money. Now, for many of you, that's not an issue anymore. You're at that place. But when I'm working with young couples, and if you have children in your lives or friends in your lives, or you are, you know, in the pursuit of a relationship, knowing that a person is able to say, this is not my money to spend how I want, and then that's your money to spend how you want, but this is our money, is, is the kind of maturity that you want to see in another person. You want to know, again, each other's debt and that kind of thing, because your debt becomes my debt <laughs> when we're married, whether we know it or not. And so that, that ability to, to leave financially is part of the list. The third one, and this will be much more apropos for everyone in the room, is what I call maturity issues. And here, any number of issues come up. Again, one of the things is uh, our anger issues, right? Like, I would never do a marriage between two people when I knew one of them had a chronic problem with anger and they weren't working on it. I would just say, sorry, I can't do your wedding. That's going to that's gonna destroy your marriage. Now, some of you in the room may have anger issues, and you should, by all means, get counseling and help with that. I just uh, was working with a couple, and, you know, eventually she had to, at least for a season, get them apart because he would not work on this explosive anger that was just so destructive to their relationship. There's a sense in which I think you can call that kind of an anger almost an abandonment of the marriage vows. One has to be careful when one does those kinds of things, but I think abandonment is larger than just simply skipping out physically of the relationship. Um, I think physical abuse is a form of abandonment, for instance. So, uh, but regardless of what you do with that, anger issues, knowing that a person has control of that. You know, one of the fascinating things in marriage counseling for me is uh, couples will say, yeah, well, we can't fight without getting angry. And then I say, well, come in. And then I frequently, and we'll go over this tomorrow, but I teach couples how to fight, and then I make them fight in front of me. This is actually standard practice, and it's really important. Um, and they'll get to an end of a session, and I'll say, well, you realize that like, neither of you blew up at the other person. And they'll say, yeah, we do realize that. I say, why do you think that is? And they'll say, because you're here. <laughs> and I'll say, no, that's actually not the reason. The reason is that you chose to exercise the self-control that you've always had. And you, you know, yeah, I was the, the context for that, but you simply did something you could always do. God has created you with the capacity for self-control. Now again, anger issues are intense. If you wanna read a great book on angry, the late Dave Powelson, wonderful book called Good and Angry, nothing better than it on the planet. Um, so that, words. Does a person speak words of grace? Right? Or is, is it a criticizing, critiquing, contemptuous person? Subtle contempt is, subtle condescension is so destructive to a relationship. That's, that was probably the one thing that I picked up from my father, a bad habit, um, was, and uh, you know, Rebecca was on me pretty quickly about it, and it was something I really had to work to eliminate from my life. That was one of those things that was in the package that she didn't quite see <laughs> prior to getting married, but then had to be addressed uh, throughout our married life was eliminating condescension uh, from our life together. And again, just speaking words of overall, an atmosphere of grace in which we're kind to one another. Again, I was just working with a couple and you know they're going through the throes of it. She's in a Broadway show and eight months pregnant and he works for CBS as a producer for a television show. They're both burning the candle at both ends. And I could just tell as I talked to them that they just lack kindness 
in the house. And I simply said, you know, that's, that, that's my assignment to you. First of all, recognize you're going through a lot, so be easy on yourself. <laughs> Don't feel like, you know, every expectation that you have for the relationship can be met at this moment. It probably can't. But also, I really want you to, to, to practice kindness, um, to really be careful of the sharp words that you speak to each other. Sharp words are death, right? So you want to marry a person who is that kind of maturity. Another issue, bring it up because it's ubiquitous in our culture now, pornography, which is, you know, I think 30% of chronic users of pornography are women now, so it's not just a guy thing, but it, it, uh, it undoes intimacy. Uh, and, you know, yeah, it's horrific and it's horrible, but it's got a lure, right? And we know it, and it's, it's way too present. And so, but we need to actually need the help from one another um, to actually say, hey, this, we need to find out a way to eliminate this from our lives because it, it does hinder uh, intimacy in the relationship. Part of you is not available to your spouse um, when, when you're engaged in, a, in, in illicit viewing of stuff. Um, and so, you know, people don't always get that completely mastered, but knowing that a person is working on things, people don't have to be perfect as they head into marriage, but they need to be aware of these issues of maturity and be working on them. Um, so, the, you know, again, the ability to make another person a priority. So that's the leaving side of the list. I'm sure there's some things I'm missing out, but those are the most uh, obvious things to me. The other side, and a couple of these things I really want to highlight, is the cleaving side. And the first thing that I mentioned there is spiritual maturity. And here by spiritual maturity, I don't mean that you're always praying and reading the Bible together. You may do that. Rebecca and I rarely read the Bible together. We pray together quite regularly. Um, and we share what we're reading uh, with each other from books and other things, or if a verse struck us. But we've never read the Bible very well together. It's just not something that we've done all that well. Um, but for me, spiritual maturity is as we make decisions, we're asking, what's the God-honoring thing to do here? In other words, is that the kind of person that I'm marrying or I'm married to, or is that the kind of person I am um, myself? Am I the kind of person who says, hey, what's the God-pleasing thing to do here? Not just what do I want, but what's the, you know, when it comes to, again, how much we're spending or our vacation time or how we're caring for our children, what's the God caring for our parents if we have aged parents, um, any number of things, just asking those regular questions. What's the God-honoring thing? And here I also want to say a little bit about spiritual leadership um, in marriages. And I'm, this will be perhaps shocking to some people. I don't find it to be a helpful term. And um, the reason why is that at least in the counseling I've done over the years, Women are regularly disappointed and men are regularly feeling inadequate. You say, well, is that a good enough reason to get rid of it? Well, perhaps not a good enough reason to get rid of it, but I think actually the Bible puts a much greater emphasis on spiritual compatibility than spiritual leadership, which is to say, hey, are we both building each other up? Rebecca is just as likely to call us to prayer as I am. Rebecca is just as likely to raise an issue as I am. Now, I am not by any stretch of the imagination, and sort of saying, I'm not sure that we shouldn't jettison the notion of spiritual leadership. I'm not saying men, it's okay for men to be passive. And that is a problem um, in our culture as a whole. And it's a problem in Christian culture, too, uh, that men tend to, 
to take a back seat and they're not active in, the, in pursuing their wives and they let the woman be primarily the emotional manager of their relationship. And most research bears out that women frequently are the emotional managers of relationships. And, uh, you know, as, I, I, that's not the worst thing in the world from a certain perspective, but if a guy is passive in the relationship, that is unhealthy for the relationship. So I do think at the end of the day, God does say, oh man, you will have final accountability for the health of your relationship. That, In other words, there's a responsibility that uniquely rests on our shoulder. But I still don't think that spiritual leadership is the best way to parse what we're looking for from men or from women in our relationships. I think what we're looking for is spiritual compatibility, spurring one another on. And you know, that leads me into a whole different conversation about gender. And actually, we just simply say, I don't think the Bible says that much about masculinity or femininity. I think it says a great deal about being a human being. And you're always a male or a female human being. So you are always either masculine or feminine. But the Bible's emphasis is on becoming like Jesus, whether you're a man or a woman, and therefore becoming truly human, whether you're a man or a woman. And uh, I think to the degree that we bring that to bear in our relationships and mutuality is and togetherness is the primary watchword in our relationships rather than leadership and submission. Um, as much as I think those have a, their appropriate place, I think the leading thing uh, in marriages and healthy marriages is when we're saying, hey, we're in this together. So spiritual maturity. Second thing, and the rest of these, will, at least the next two will be rather quick, common values, goals, purposes. In other words, you're looking for a person who shares not so much the same interests, Right? You can love basketball, and he can love ballet, <laughs> and uh, you can do just fine together. But uh, you can have all sorts of, Rebecca and I have many, many different interests, and never the twain shall meet in some of our interests. Uh, but we do have common values and goals and purposes um, in, in terms of, again, a sense of what we want to accomplish mission-wise, not exclusively just us, but what we do want to do together along those lines. Uh, a similar relationship, to, do, we, do we have the same relationship to money? Do we value it similarly? Is one of us given to extravagance while the other is given to um, you know, miserliness? Um, those would be hard things to work through. You can work through them, but getting on the same page, do we both want to have children? Do we want to live urban or suburban? Some of these things won't matter at all. Others of them matter a great deal. It all depends on the couple. But you want to have common values, goals, purposes. That's number second on the leaving list. Third, communication and conflict resolution skills. And I'll say much more about this tomorrow, but here I'll simply say this. No one gets married because they fight well. <laughs> you say, hey, we really fight really well. We should do this thing. Um, but no one stays married if they don't fight well. And so we're going to spend a significant session tomorrow on fighting well because it's a skill that most couples sorely lack and you can really learn to do it it will make such a great difference in your relationship and then basic communication do we and we're going to talk about this more in the rituals of connection time but are we able to really share our inner lives with each other you know i suppose in the past marriages were entered into for all sorts of different reasons reasons status reasons socioeconomic reasons you know, keeping the kingdoms together reasons. But now people pretty much exclusively marry for the sole purpose of experiencing intimacy 
with another person. I think it's broader than that, but it's certainly not less than that. And if you have a spouse that isn't able to sort of share their joys and their struggles, it can get to feel pretty lonely in our marriages. So learning to not only fight well, but to have good communication, good connection skills. And then the last category here is what I call companionship um, qualities. And here are such things uh, as hey, do we energize each other or do we drain each other? Everyone drains each other some, but on a a whole, if I'm in a relationship or if one of your kids is in a relationship, uh, is it a a life-giving, energizing relationship or is it a draining relationship? Are we able to serve as counselors to one another? Not the only counselor, but a meaningful counselor. In other words, do I respect this person and their wisdom? Uh, Hard to have a thriving marriage if you don't have that attitude towards your spouse. Do I feel radically accepted? by this person, accepted at my worst? Or do I feel like I'm always having to be defensive, that I'm walking on eggshells? You know, I spot that in a second when I'm working with couples, the defensiveness thing, and you can just see the one partner is terrified of saying the wrong thing. What a horrible situation to have to live in. And you know, and if you're one of those people who gets so easily irritated or so easily offended, again, here's one of those qualities you can keep on working. <laughs> Uh, in your life to make life much more pleasant for your spouse and for the both of you. What a horrible way to live, right? So um, uh, what else would be here? You know, hey, am I attracted to the person? <laughs> it's always, you know, you, you, you know import- do I like being with the person? Uh, do, do we enjoy spending time together? But those are all the companionship issues that are important uh, as well. So in my experience, uh, and again, as you work with perhaps your children or other people in the church, or if you're single yourself, um, if you are in a relationship with a person and there are no red flags in any of those areas, my general advice is, assuming you've been with each other for roughly a year, I think you can't really know another person if you haven't been through the seasons with them. I've made that mistake a couple of times of marrying people who said, oh yeah, we're we really know we're supposed to be together, and never again will I marry a couple who hasn't been together for at least a year. Um, too often it doesn't work out. But, but by then you actually know most of who the other person is. Um, and if you can go through that list and there's no red flags, I'd say, hey, don't look a gift horse in the mouth, go for it. On the other hand, if there are any yellow or red flags, you know, doesn't mean you shouldn't get married, but it does mean you should work on them before you get married, right? So, you have to take care of those things. So um, there's a list. What time are we looking at? We may already be out of time. And if we are, nope, we got nine minutes. So here's what we're going to do with our nine minutes. Rather than talking just uh, to your spouse, just around the tables. Um, yeah, what do, you, what do you make of the list? Would you add anything to it? Would you take anything away? Do you think, you know, what's your general reaction to the material I just presented? And particularly, do some self-examination, not necessarily at your table, <laughs> but when you go home this evening, hey, what are, is, is there one of these qualities that I could especially be working on, even if I've been married 50 years? You know, am I, am I too easily irritated? You know, that, that's an unpleasant thing to be around. Let me work on that. Um, so use this as a time to take stock as well. But first, talk amongst yourselves. Um, uh, and how to fight well, how to fight constructively, 
which I, I think will be really important stuff to think about and reflect on. And then we'll finish the morning talking about anger in marriage, alienation, unmet expectations, and forgiveness and reconciliation. How do we, how do we go about pulling those things off in practical ways where, again, we can really thrive? So let me pray for us, and we'll see you tomorrow morning. Yeah, please. Absolutely, great for you to sit at the same tables. I don't know that it's necessary, but I think it's a great idea. You've started to get to know each other. Go for it. Executive decision made. Um, let me pray for us. Uh, God, we thank you for this night. Thanks for, uh, thanks for our time around the tables. Thanks for letting us be a family together, talking about things that matter in a slightly different environment, a more informal environment. And uh, Lord, we do pray that uh, you would use both our, our time this evening as well as our time tomorrow to make us a healthier church community overall, one that shows forth your beauty in the world. As uh, the prophet uh, Zechariah has written, uh, the Lord will rescue his people like the shepherd rescues his sheep. They will shine in the land like jewels in the crown. How beautiful and attractive they will be. Lord, we long to be that kind of people. We can't be it without each other and, of course, without you. Uh, use our time together to that end. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. See you in the morning.